Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior, and thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, and that is your time. My, the year is moving right along. I'm so grateful that you are here with me today. And uh, as we move into this season of Thanksgiving, I just wanted to say ahead of next week's Thanksgiving festivities, whatever you're planning, I hope that you are taking some time to give thanks for all the things that we enjoy, for your family, your work, for this community of Solar Warriors, as I do every single week. I'm so grateful for you all. Well, today, we are going to dive down the rabbit hole of how community solar is taking off as a category. And there are a ton of folks working in this space. Few of them are experiencing the kinds of success that today's entrepreneur is. They are democratizing people's access to clean energy. I often refer to Arcadia Power as the Comcast of solar when I'm trying to explain it to others who've never heard of Community Solar or Arcadia or how this whole crazy thing works. But Arcadia is using customer demand to disrupt the utility model and giving consumers choice in exactly how they buy electricity. That sounds familiar. We've been talking about consumer choice a lot lately, and I thought this would be a fitting follow-up to our deregulated markets conversation. Well, today, I'm excited to actually have the founder of Arcadia, Mr. Kiran Batraju, here to clarify exactly what drew him into the world of clean energy and how he and his team are going to use the massive $100 million war chest they recently raised in their Series D to further the energy transition, decarbonize the grid, and democratize energy access. If you're new here and you like these kinds of things, first, I want to say thank you for your attention. And secondly, I want to encourage you to subscribe to this show and you can check our content twice a week just like this you can also dig into more than 400 additional founder stories and startup advice in the archives right there in your podcast player or on mysuncast.com where we get a little bit further into the backstory of the guests sometimes and we list out their book recommendations and suggestions other links that you can dig into it's a fun way to get to know the guests a little bit better but first let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Gotta say, Karen, it is a it is a little bit eerie still, pandemic times, to see what should be holding your 160 plus employees, uh, essentially serving as an oversized office for the two of us today. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's much nicer with people. I'll yeah, I can only imagine. I'll have to come back when it's buzzing and humming in a, in a few months a time. I, I miss hope. it. Yeah, you gotta be honest. Like, yeah, I bet. What do you miss about it? I mean, all these start any startup journey, right? It's about mm. people. We've got amazing people at Arcadia, and I loved the in-person interaction, the back and forth, the mm-hmm. collaboration. And there's just no serendipity on Zoom, right? 
And that is <laughs> absolutely clear. You're saying you've got team members that, that you've hired during the pandemic. You've never even actually met, right? Their leadership. Yeah, it's crazy. They, you know, maybe, you know, we actually do all hands every, every Monday at noon, doing it for the life of the company. And I think it's, I think people appreciate it even more during the pandemic. But when I say there's no serendipity, like I don't hear about people's families. I don't hear about the, the banter on the side about what's going on in their lives. Uh, it's, it just feels very transactional because uh, we're all doing the video chats and asynchronously getting our work done rather than being in person and talking about it. So it's tough. And I think I've talked to a lot of founders who are struggling, uh, who may have had an in-person culture and then had to transition and likewise, I've, I've, we've found ways to get used to it, but I'll be honest, it's, it's much better to be in person. Yeah. Hard to build culture when it's mostly slack. Totally. 100%. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, you're the founder and CEO of Arcadia Power. We'll talk a lot today about what Arcadia is meant to be. It's a digital platform, as many have uh, surmised from the intro. Uh, I'm impressed that you guys have been around for eight years and, you know, it's, it is amazing how genuinely how long it takes for to get momentum to get that flywheel turning in our industry especially when you're doing something essentially brand new uh when you started arcadia in 2013 uh which now as i understand you can correct my math here but manages over 500 megawatts of community solar uh you were at that time focused on i think even wind energy right That's as right. as your uh sort of clean energy portal or, or a portfolio builder. How many other companies had a similar idea? Do you have a sense of that in 2013? I don't think there were many. I mean, we were unique in that we were approaching quote unquote retail energy mm. in an entirely new way. So in some ways you, you could, you could think of us similar to uh, the folks that have been in retail for a long time, like NRG, Vistra, except we don't trade power. We don't take risk, right? Uh, we do want to manage and, and own the customer experience. So slightly different, but there were a lot of companies, there still are a lot of companies that are going after a consumer in energy, but you know, they make their money off risk. It's a very different model than what we're doing. I, I listened to a number of other friends that I admire who have done interviews with you. And one uh, characterized what you're doing as a new kind of electric utility providing clean energy to anyone in the U.S. through per virtual power purchases community solar, and the simplification of power bills. So we'll dig into kind of those three areas today for sure. We'll talk all about what is community solar and how are you simplifying power bills. Before we do that, though, uh, I would love to get a sense of your upbringing. You have a, I'd say for many, it might even sound and feel like a traditional American upbringing, um, you know, with a name like Batraju, many will here will wonder like, where is this guy from? Tell me a little bit about your childhood. And uh, one of the things I often like to hear is, what was it like around the dinner table in your household? Yeah, uh, we, <laughs> if we had a few bourbons to do this with, you, my, <laughs> my, accent, my accent would come out. No, um, you got to tell me. I'll, here, I'll draw it out for you. So, so tell me a little bit about where you're from. <laughs> yeah, you're from North Carolina. Yeah, I'm from, I'm from South Carolina. Huh? <laughs> okay, there you go. Uh, yeah, it was, I mean, growing up in Kentucky was special. It was great. And it was Eastern Kentucky. So it was Appalachia. It was coal country. Urban country. Um, yeah. Pike County, Kentucky, uh, you know, we grew up in, in Pikeville, which was the county seat. Oh, shit. Uh, my town had 6,000 people. And my father uh, came over in the 80s 
from India, and this is actually an extremely common story mm. of Indian American doctors came here, trained, but then landed in small town America. Yeah. Because whether you ascribe it to racism or just need, those were where the jobs were or you could get. You know, in a lot of ways, my dad, and I, I never really thought about it this way until much later in life, but my father was really an entrepreneur. I mean, most immigrants are entrepreneurs, but even the idea of leaving your country, the language, the people, the family you know, to land in a place like, I mean, to say foreign is, is like an understatement, mm-hmm. right? If, if for, you know, people are listening to this who've been to Appalachia, but it was amazing. It was an amazing place. Community was welcoming. Our dinner table was loud. You had opinions, strong and loosely held. Uh, we talked about the news. We talked about current events. We talked about, yeah. Did your family speak multiple languages? Yeah. So, um, yeah, as most, most Indians of that era too. Um, I actually, my, my family's from Hyderabad. They spoke Telugu. Uh, which is like the, you know, most people have never heard of this language, but it's spoken by like 200 million people in India, right? Basically two-thirds of the population in the United States. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, it was a mix of Telugu and English in our home, which now with my two young kids, we, you know, made the decision to put them in, you know, Spanish immersion school to get that Mm, language early in life. So it was like a mixed language household. Yeah. And your father was a physician working in a small town. How do you feel like that impacted the perspective you had on the town and of the town on you? You know, a lot of people ask me about what it must have been like to be a a brown kid in this town, one of the only Indian families. There were a few of us, but, you know, I think by virtue of my dad being a doctor, you know, sort of a respected person in the community was helpful. And frankly, people didn't know, they didn't have preconceived prejudices to bring to, to the us. Indian, yeah. Like, had we been, I tell a lot of people this, had we been African-American, I think it would have been a very different, you know, or Hispanic, true yeah. across the or Hispanic, exactly. It's absolutely right. And so, you know, it was great. Like, the community was amazing. It was mm-hmm. welcoming. I mean, you know, and being a doctor, I think certainly helped uh, because he was literally healing people in the yeah. community. Wow, so. that's beautiful. You told me a story of a lady that had a big impact on your life. I think your father actually worked for her. Yeah. You wrote a book yeah. about her life. I'm, I'm really intrigued by the idea that early, like very early in your career, maybe even like your first true career opportunity, you wrote a biography of someone who you admired. Uh, t- tell me why you chose that path and how she inspired you in your life. Yeah, I think I've, on your other podcasts, I've heard you ask people, you know, what would you do if you weren't doing this? I would have been a writer. I don't know if I'm good at it. Uh, and I'll let your listeners pick up the book to figure that out. But cool. we'll um, link to it. I love biographies. I've always loved biographies. I think they're just amazing windows into, um, you know, whether a time period, an issue through, told through a narrative of someone's life. Uh, this woman, Eula Hall, who uh, was from Eula, Mud- Eula Hall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an, uh, she's an amazing person. She grew up in Mud Creek, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. She built one of the first community health centers in Appalachia. And yeah, my father worked there from time to time. And it was just an amazing American story of someone who grew up in poverty, who had an incredibly difficult childhood, didn't get a full education, but became this sort of community warrior and understood like people 
weren't getting, uh, politicians were lying to them. They weren't getting the healthcare they needed. Someone had to sort of step in and do it uh, herself. Yeah. And modern medicine woman. Yeah. And, you know, she stood up for a community that, you know, few others felt like, you know, could do anything. You know, I think one of the things that in writing that story that I appreciated, and this was before I did anything in energy, was just the impact of coal in the region. And you knew it growing up, it was coal was king, right? It was the lifestyle, it was everything. But the black lung cases, the the, the death and despair of working on, in underground mines, you know, affected Eula's family, you know, significantly. In fact, I think two of her children actually worked in the mines. It's a big business in, in that area. Kentucky. Uh, yeah, huge. And, and the thing is, it's been on the decline since I was growing up there. Yeah. Um, and now it's been decimated mm. completely. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the, the tragedies that um, we don't talk enough about is, I think, especially in a place like D.C., we talk a lot about how these communities, you know, they, I think the perspective is these communities are still obsessed with coal. And the reality is they're not. It's, the, it's, it's no one's given them the transition. Economy, oh, like what yes. happens next? And no politicians told them the truth of like, here's what we need to do to diversify and create new opportunity. I'm, I'm pondering for a moment this statement. No one's given them the transition. Because that's a powerful perspective to think on. We all take for granted that at some point, we're going to talk a little bit about your inflection point, that someone activated the idea in us that there was a different way to treat the planet, generate electricity, uh, inhabit our, our space, co-inhabit. We talk about it in an episode, I think it was episode 400 actually with Mike, that idea that we don't give enough credit to the work that went into creating the modern industrial life that we enjoy, the privilege from which we throw, we cast stones from our ivory tower at the very industry that built it. I have a line in the book, uh, I'm probably going to butcher it, but um, Appalachian men and women sacrificed their lives to fight wars abroad and went underground to power this economy. You're exactly right. You know, and I think it's hard. Every, everyone who's listening to this obviously cares about decarbonization, cares about the transition, but we can't forget about these communities. You know, one of the analogies I make to folks is like, what if we just stripped Hollywood out of LA, right? What would happen, right? Uh, when you just take away a way of life in an industry for people, um, obviously they're going to fight to take it back. Um, but someone needs to be there to say, oh, actually, here's new opportunities. Um, you know, here's a way to, you know, recreate an economy. And, and frankly, like, we just didn't have the politicians locally or nationally that actually were making that argument or putting resources behind that. Do you remember the first time it became clear to you that there was an opportunity to begin saving, preserving, cleaning up the electrons that were powering our lives? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was actually much later than uh, I think most people in this industry who, you know, I think got in early. Like I worked in politics and policy. It was really coming to D.C. Um, and maybe the culmination of growing up in eastern Kentucky plus like seeing the issue firsthand. I worked on Capitol Hill when we were talking about the first piece of climate legislation that ultimately failed. But I also ended up learning a lot about just the structure of utility monopolies and how 
power gets generated and decisions get made. While all while on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Huh. Um, Just through watching how lobby was happening. Yeah, I mean, there were there were all sorts of issues being discussed. Uh, I worked for a congressman from Louisville, and the local utility at the time was being acquired by a German conglomerate, Eon. It was just a mix of all these things. And I think, honestly, I think one of the, and I think your listeners will appreciate this, but I also thought about how there was going to be this massive transition. Like I knew it was sort of obvious that it was going to happen to renewables and clean energy. And I just couldn't shake this idea that this was going to be the one of the biggest, you know, things in our lifetime period yeah. uh, in terms of, just size and scope and scale. And maybe I knew that because I grew up in a place that was so dependent on an energy economy uh, that it just felt so big and important. And I always been attracted to like big ideas. And this was back in like 2006 and seven, but it was just so clear to me that this was going to be, and I feel like it's it's finally sort of taken shape 15 years later, but that uh, our, our entire economy had to sort of change the way it was powered, literally. What did you focus on earlier in terms of study? Like you said, you would have been a writer. Did like did you, did you learn to code, or were were there any of the traditional telltale signs that we might look at from a founder of a tech company that would uh, that I would that I would recognize? I don't think so. I, you know, and it, it is like wait. So you don't code? I do not code. Okay. Uh, I wish I did. And you're not. You're not. You don't have a finance background. I don't. No finance background. Political science. Political science. Yeah, I was much more interested in big ideas, policy, politics. So your first, your first go, like your first bite of the apple is this company that most people won't even recognize called American Efficient, uh, now owned by a pair of friends of ours down in Durham. Where did that idea come from? If, you, if you're, not, you're not an economist, you're not a finance guy, you're not, you're not coming from energy trading. Right. You know, it, it actually, so it wasn't, I was... Uh, it wasn't my idea, but I was uh, part of the founding team. Uh, a good friend of mine, Ross Shannon, who had started a company previously, Silicon Valley, wanted to work in clean energy. We were close friends in college, and he, I think, deeply understood how regulatory issues, regulatory markets um, were so important to energy. So I joined him. I left Capitol Hill to join him on this journey to make energy efficiency easier. Actually, the first thing we did was build software to make energy efficiency rebates simple. I don't even know what the current number is, but at the time, it was like a $6 billion market of utilities and their commissions offering rebates to get energy efficient products. Right. Light bulbs at Home Depot. Totally. Thing. But yeah. it was so different than like a cell phone rebate because the utilities actually wanted you to, like they wanted to prove that you actually got the device. product, yeah, device and uh, got the savings. Um, so that was, that was sort of the initial idea, actually. What did, what did Ross bring you in to do? Uh, I was the tip of the spear. I was selling. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking Mm -hmm. to regulators. I was selling to utilities. I get it. Okay. So if, if you're trying to start this company, that's going to need to understand and navigate the political landscape, you better bring someone that is a buddy from Capitol Hill as a co-founder. That makes perfect sense to me. You knew how to navigate the regulatory landscape in a way, even though that you didn't necessarily like understand the formula, you definitely knew what doors to open and who, who you could talk to, right? Yeah, I think, I think three degrees of separation away from the answers. Totally. I mean, a lot of people, it's like the most important thing to understand if you're playing in the utility space is the, the incentives that exist for utilities, 
right? Fire. Yeah, right the there. power That's of the raid base. Yeah. Um, so it was like a multi-pronged effort. We would talk to regulators. I was going to NARUK conferences. NARUK, what's that mean? <laughs> Some of your listeners will laugh when I hear that. Uh, the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners. Yeah, wow. It's like the Association <laughs> of Commissioners. That's exactly right. It's like a room full of uh, maybe 100 people. <laughs> the most exciting people in America. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, talking to utilities, and we did a lot of work with like co-ops and munis. Uh, which were great, I think more responsive to consumers. But I mean, that was painful, long sales cycles. Um, and ultimately we were, you know, selling something to, selling some of these utilities that was, you know, not necessarily front and center to them. I've tried to listen to Ben who, who founded Wyland that ultimately ended up absorbing American Efficient. I've tried to listen to him like explain how the the bigger game works if you want to frame it as a game. And even being in the industry, it's confusing. It's like, wait a minute, wait, back up. Let me, let me hear that again. We won't go into those details today because I'd probably will just save it for Ben. That'd be a fun conversation for him to navigate. And we'll draw it. I'll, I'll, I'll for sure get Ben on and we'll connect, we'll connect the dots for listeners to American Efficient and tie it back to this episode. But, uh, you know, I'm fascinated when I see a, a, an entrepreneur, because you had to jump in as an entrepreneur, that decides to make a pivot, decides to start a new thing, Right. For those who aren't aware, like American Efficient still exists today. Karen just isn't there. In 2014, he decided, 2013 time frame, decided to take a new path. How much of the decision, and I'm asking you to be a little more vulnerable than maybe you would be in normal uh, interviews, but how much of the decision to start Arcadia was a bright idea and how much of it was like a pain of like, I got to do something different from what I'm doing now and I got to figure that out, right? I w- I'd like to understand that evolution for you. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a little bit of both, right? So through American Efficient, it just became so painfully obvious that consumers, it was, it was hard for consumers to make the right decisions, either to get energy-efficient products or connect to clean energy, which American Efficient at the time wasn't really involved in, but right. you know, it was so important. It was just like so clear to me, and I actually didn't know anything about the broader retail energy industry I was talking about earlier, but I learned about it through um, American Efficient. It even existed, and it was sort of eye-opening that, mm-hmm. oh, there are companies talking to consumers. Right. Uh, you started learning about the deregulated markets. Exactly. Choice energy. Mm-hmm. Choice energy, what was happening in Texas, et cetera. So it was, it was a lot of learnings uh, of like the pain of the structures industry, but also, like I think, a big idea born out of what was happening elsewhere in the world, which was digital companies engaging with consumers, you know, against, unlike the incumbents who are treating them poorly, you know, putting those two ideas together sort of led to Arcadia. It was what felt like a much bigger idea, which was here are these 150 million residential customers that are captured effectively by the utility. Is there a way to get in between that relationship and make it easy for a customer to be more efficient, to electrify their home, to get cleaner energy. That was the big idea at the time. And I was like taken by that because it was, it was, it just felt like nobody was doing it too. It's, I think a lot of founders, they ask themselves, well, you know, why is nobody doing this? Why is nobody doing this? And eventually you ask yourself that question enough times, you're like, okay, maybe, maybe I should go do this. Yeah. <laughs> so I read somewhere that you, came up with this big idea in the way that we all sort of, when we fantasize about going on vacation, it's like, oh, I'm going to go clear my mind. Can you tell me the moment where it was like, 
catalyzed for you? You can go, hmm, this thing, I don't know what I'll call it, but it's going to do this. You know, walk me into that moment. There is actually a moment because I've been asked this question so many times and I've, I've had to like really deeply think about it. So this thing, it happens over months or years, right? The ideas. But I, I specifically remember being at a conference and this is like it's very energy specific <laughs> conference. Uh, but there was a retail energy CEO on stage who was basically saying, I can't grow my business because I don't actually talk to the customer. I don't own the bill and I don't really have any data on them. I just trade energy. That's how I make my money. I, I get them to sign up and I trade energy and make money. And it was just like so clear that, okay, this guy is saying this. He doesn't have access to any of these tools. This matches everything I'm thinking about, about mm-hmm. getting closer to the customer and trying to manage that relationship. And it was just kind of like, yeah, if I don't do this, like, um, I'll probably regret it. Right. Had you already left American Efficient? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had left. The company had taken a, a different direction uh, doing capacity market, mm-hmm. sort of aggregating to sell on capacity markets. Um, and that was Ross's brainchild. It was, it was brilliant. I wasn't terribly involved in it, still sort of selling to utilities. And uh, at that point, I was like, you know. Getting further away from the customer here. Yeah, exactly. And exactly right. And I just felt, I felt the desire to also like, you know, take a shot at trying something on my own too. Yeah, that's, there's, there's two strong pulls, right? One is it's what American Efficient moved towards is really sort of training computers and, and training markets to like your product, to know what it looks like. And what you wanted was to go towards understanding consumers and you wanted to do something on your own. Yeah. Did you decide to do that alone? Did you choose, as Ross did, co-founders? How did you think about that early moment of building the company? Yeah, I had a, a, a co-founder early on who was a close family friend. And we, yeah, he had no real background energy, but... Um, you know, it, especially in the early days, like it's, it's much easier, um, you know, starting a company with yeah. someone mm-hmm. by yourself. You're considered right now the, the only founder though, right? It's like, you're okay. Yeah. He's since left the company, but yeah, it happens. It happens more often than people realize. Yeah. When you think back on the time as a writer, the time as a, uh, as a legislative aide, as a sales and business development professional, are there any tools, like I'm thinking more like mental models, management tools, first principles that you feel have served you when you began the Arcadia journey? Yeah, I, I think um, being in a true sales role is so educating. Um, you need to have a high EQ, mm-hmm. right? You need to be able to talk to very different types of people, right? It's ultimately understanding like what the other person's motivation is. Like, very few things actually get sold. They get bought. Yeah. Right. And that, and if you really know, like the person you're talking to on the other side of the table, what problem can, are you actually solving for them? And I think uh, if you were to ask, like, what did I take away from previous life for things I studied? I think it was just an understanding of psychology and human behavior in that respect. Um, and it, it's a complex sale, right? Because mm-hmm. it's the regulatory angle. It's mm-hmm. you know, our, this at least in American efficiency world. You know, the utility, the cooperative utility is very different pressures from a board and a customer than the investor-owned utility, sort of understanding all those pieces. So I think systems thing, I think actually a lot of, if you uh, come out of a world of, of, of politics and actually um, 
you're, you're thinking about systems, right? You're yeah. thinking about people in psychology. How do you actually get something done when there's multiple factors? And I think especially in sales, in the type of sales in the energy industry that's so complex uh, and heavily regulated, that kind of systems thinking was really beneficial. But then again, I wasn't that successful. So <laughs> take all this with a grain of salt. Like American Efficient ended up uh, actually making money uh, doing something very different. So yeah. 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 <laughs> well, as a founder, I'm curious how you go about thinking around building that team. And oftentimes I'll relate it to, you know, I, I call soccer football because live most, more in Latin America and Europe. But if you think about building that football team and you're the coach, you have to put, you have to have a keeper or else the other team will score, but you also have to have, you know, you have to have a, someone on the front lines to put the ball in the net. Um, all, all of the roles are important, but you got to have some of them earlier than others. How did you think about that early on? Yeah, I, I, um, whether or not I knew it at the time or sort of like identified it, early on we were looking for people that just had high horsepower, hmm. intellectual horsepower, yeah. could like attack the problem and, and get their hands dirty, right? And that's, that's hmm. so important. There were, you know, a couple of early hires that were just so crucial. Um, you know, our first hire was a guy named Cliff Bernstein who was really young but had built an affiliate marketing business. He, a lot of our early growth you know, direct to consumers, it directly attributed to Cliff. He was the first guy in the office always. Yeah. He would run his own experiments, run his own data. He was scrappy in a way and incredibly productive, but scrappy and willing to try new things, willing to say he was wrong. And I think that's just incredibly useful. Um, Kate Henningsen, who's been at the company since the beginning, I think she was, you know, one of the first three or four hires. She was a litigator before she came here. Also didn't know a ton about energy, but she's taught me that just having an enthusiasm goes a long way. It's infectious mm-hmm. on everyone else about learning, you know, winning, which is a big part of a startup is like growing, winning, you know, uh, you know, revenue and getting customers. But enthusiasm is important. Like, you know, a startup is tough. Like you can have your best day and your worst day on the same day. And the roller coaster is very real. Um, and so she's just been an amazing team player again, like, you know, brilliant and high horsepower. And Joel, you mentioned, like, we, we took Joel from a company named Yoloha. Uh, some of you, I'm sure your listeners will remember. Uh, it was one of the first, like, community solar companies. And that guy's just on a mission to make community solar bigger than rooftop solar. You know, he's helped us navigate a bunch of pivots on, like, how do we enter this market? You know, how do we talk to customers? How do we talk to developers, et cetera? I think then and now we've realized and maybe now we've more formalized that you want people who have a point of view but are willing to you know, look at new data and even question themselves. And I think that's actually very rare. People don't like being told uh, or, or seeing that something was wrong. Yeah. Um, but it's so important because we're, we're creating something new. No one's yeah. done before. You have to be able to do that. You mentioned high horsepower. How do you qualify and how do you test for it? I think you look at someone's history, right? And it's... Were they able to take on new challenges? Mm-hmm. Were, they, were they scared of new challenges, right? Like if you look at some people's resumes, there's actually like a path dependence you can see where, oh, this person just took the easy next step. And you may hear it in references too. So I think you can actually look at someone's work history, maybe how varied it is, which I think is something very like 
you know, if you came up in the last decade or two, it's you've had these careers where people have jumped around. And I think that's perfectly fine, but it's what are the challenges you took on yeah. when you jumped around? When you jumped, were you looking for something specific yeah. or, did, or did you take on something? Did you have real responsibility? Right. Were there things in mm. your prior history, even if you're 22 and it was an internship or something you did in your, your spare time, where it just mattered the, about the effort you put in for hmm. the outcome? And I think those are the type of things. And then obviously like, you know, uh, you know, have you built something? Yeah. And, and what does that mean? That could be anything, right? Like I, I wrote a book, yeah. you know, like that's, Absolutely. that felt like my first startup. Um, <laughs> so. You referred to it as your first career earlier in a conversation yeah, right. between us, which was what yeah. struck me, right? To refer to that as a, as your career, like writing a book. You're probably familiar with Energy Toolbase. I mean, nearly 1,500 organizations worldwide utilize ETB Developer to quantify the savings and economics of their projects. But did you know that ETB provides a comprehensive suite of software products to help model, control, and monitor solar and energy storage projects all in one platform? That's right. I know you're probably familiar with their industry-leading modeling, but controls, monitoring? Yeah. Acumen EMS software is actually fully integrated with energy storage giants like BYD, Delta, Dynapower, and Sokomec, leveraging AI and machine learning to forecast, control, and optimally discharge energy storage systems operating in the field. Or maybe you are looking for ETB Monitor to gain complete transparency into the operational performance and true dollar savings of your operating fleet. Well, if I were you, I'd schedule a Zoom with one of ETB's knowledgeable account managers you can mention Suncast when you sign up for your free trial and you get a 30-day extended free trial. You can also just click on the tool-based logo at mysuncast.com or in our newsletters or right there in the description of today's episode in whatever app you're listening to this on to take full advantage of this free trial. Don't wait. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. You mentioned that Cliff built an affiliate marketing system. Some here are going to definitely know what affiliate marketing is, but can you elaborate a bit on how you found Cliff and why the rea- the fact that he had built an affiliate system was attractive for the business that you wanted? Yeah, so he had, he had built, uh, I should say, he built an affiliate network before you joined Arcadia. Yeah. But 
how do we find him? It was, it was, you know, networks. Friend what were you friends. looking for though? We were looking for someone who understood the, understood the tools and trade of the trade of new direct to consumer companies. Yeah. Okay. And, and what did that look like? Right. Mm-hmm. At the time, you know, Warby Parker was just taking off and a lot of D2C brands for the first time were sort of repackaging, going straight to the customer and delivering something new, but it was through digital channels. So email marketing, uh, aff- affiliates. So, content-driven affiliate marketing um, that you see on the internet often, Facebook, Google, search. Someone who, and I'm not going to say when we hired Cliff, he knew all this, but he was a quick learn. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, that was incredibly useful for us growing the customer base. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that captured my attention early, and and it was one of the reasons that I reached out to you originally, I wanted to get to know you, but I realized, I I saw that you had hired a lady uh, and, and I was big in particular at the beginning of last year on who in our industry are going to bring female executives from other industries that we can learn from and that we can apply tactics of growth that actual legit tech companies have used, right? Like I see so many just moving chairs on the Titanic in some in some areas of our industry, right? Like people just move from one dining hall to the next. They don't move to a completely new ship, right? But I noticed in a press release that you had hired this lady, Rubina Singh from Pinterest. Where did the idea come from for you? You're like, it's time for us to start marketing. We want to become this Comcast of solar. Let's go find somebody who has X. Yeah. Uh, Kate, my COO, likes to say, you know, the energy industry is very stale, male, and pale. Uh, <laughs> it is good. 100% true. So good. Um, <laughs> but no, I think, look, I mean, no one's cracked this nut getting consumers, you know, in mass to choose clean energy. We've made a point to get people from outside of the industry. So mm-hmm. Rubina's a great example. She's incredible. She spent, you know, was the, at Pinterest. Um, Sanjeev, our chief product officer, was one of the co-founders of ClassPass. Yeah, wow. Um, We've hired designers from Square, um, Airbnb. I think it's important. Like this is, you know, what those companies have done in other areas of tech is just yeah. build exponential businesses in the short amount of time, like yeah. unlike anything in history, mm-hmm. right? And we need to like try to do that yeah. to decarbonize fast. And so I, I like strongly believe I can teach someone about energy, even though it's, it's a steep learning curve, as you know, but like we can do that. It's, it's, we should want to go get, you know, Anil, our, our head of engineering was at Betterment, right? Mm, a FinTech company. Wow. I want that kind of talent. I want them to bring perspectives that we may not have. Mm-hmm. And I, I like, you know, something I think about often is like, I may have too much scar tissue yeah. because I've been around this industry too long. You need fresh you know? thinking. Yeah. Yeah. You need someone to say, why haven't you tried this? Yeah. Ooh, that's a great question. Exactly. What's an example in the last year, just in the, the pandemic era where someone in your team has like shattered your, where you've changed your mind because your team shattered your like previously held conviction? I think the most important thing, I think a lot of the folks we brought on who've had tech experience elsewhere is just continually thinking about ripping out friction from mm-hmm. the process. Our, today, it's a literal two-minute sign-up to connect you to clean energy. We've actually stripped and stripped and stripped away mm-hmm. friction that actually existed in our product for, for six years. In fact, uh, one, of the, one of the things we're working on is the ability of you to just take a picture of your bill with your phone and be done to sign up. I had a previous boss who referred to it as persecuting friction. And I really like it. It, it. 
it resonates, you know, it's, you can wrap your head around what it means to persecute friction in a process, in a business. And many listening will resonate with the fact that we are trained in the energy business to not think in hourly or daily or even weekly, but monthly cycles. We're trained even from a biz dev perspective to think, unless you're in the residential door knocking business, that this is a thing that takes time. And that's what's uh, in, inspiring and I think challenging the industry about businesses like Arcadia is you're saying, no, this is a thing that already exists and we need to convert users to a new mindset. And we can do that in two minutes. We can buy, do that by persecuting friction in this process. It doesn't, it shouldn't take, it shouldn't take two weeks of education. It shouldn't take, uh, you know, 15 mailers to their doorstep. hundred percent. Right. Yeah. So with that in mind, you guys have more than a quarter million customers. You purchased over almost 700,000 megawatt hours. Correct me if it's more than that by now. How are you approaching the market differently? How are you attracting customers? Through what model? And let's unpack a little bit community solar and how that fits in. But for at a, at a 30,000 foot level, then let's drill down. Yeah, it, we look, we, it's all of the above. We do digital marketing across a number of channels, affiliate marketing, referrals. We have found an amazing channel through corporate benefits. Mm-hmm. A lot of corporations care about their footprint. Uh, I think you know, that explosion of sort of interest and uh, corporate carbon mitigation has been massive, but now we see companies wanting to extend it to their employees so, or sure. their customers, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got to deal with Airbnb uh, where we're starting to deliver community solar to hosts. Oh, wow. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Just super interesting. Um, you want to be able to, if you're a host, you're, you're trying to think of ways to differentiate and to be able to say I'm a clean powered home is, is incredibly uh, beneficial. Yes. Sign me up. Exactly. Is this something that's easy for me in North Carolina? Uh, well, there, this is in community solar states today. Okay. I've got a question for that. So we'll talk yeah, about choice yeah, markets yeah. in a minute. Exactly. What about the model? Like I've heard folks refer to things that we recognize from Dropbox and other companies as like freemium. Yep. How have you begun to leverage tech products like freemium models in energy, which is a great idea? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, we offer, we, we offer different products to customers based on their zip code. And that's just the, by nature, that's mm-hmm. what, you know, uh, energy looks and feels like. So if you're in North Carolina, it could be a rec product. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're in Illinois, it's community solar and it's cheaper, cheaper energy on your bill. Yeah. And so in trying to take away some of the friction, what we're doing is making the journey as simple as possible. The rec is, is as the first step in is sort of the simplest thing, paying your power bill. Yeah. Rec some renewable energy credit, which you can buy on an open market That's right. and apply anywhere. It's like, it's a decoupling of the environmental attribute from the electricity that the consumer uses for well those said. who aren't familiar. Yeah. Well said, yeah. And then there's you know community solar, which is virtual net metering. So it's taking the idea of a rooftop solar project, but putting it in a field somewhere, uh, but getting the same benefit and same savings. Can community solar also be on a rooftop somewhere? Yeah, it can. We actually have a ton of rooftop projects uh, in... I think this is one of the big misconceptions, right? That's is right. They think it's got to be this big 5, 10, 15, 20 megawatt system. It doesn't. With I mean, an anchor have, tenant. And- <laughs> that's right. Uh and there are those, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it can, I think what's actually maybe so interesting about it is uh, you can put it on a commercial building, but maybe it's more load than the commercial building can hold, right? And so you can sell it as community. So the commercial building themselves, they, their project allows them to become the tenant, the anchor tenant. Holy moly. Yeah. But, you know, it, originally in, in a prior life, they might have said, oh, well, we only need 
50 KW right. or whatever, right, right. but now they can maximize the roof and resell it as community. And that's just one example. You know, we have projects as small as, again, 50, 100 KW and as big as 10 megs. I would go into like a deeper dive with you on community solar, but as we know, I'm going to spend some time with Joel on that conversation as well. Uh, I would like to understand when did it occur to you that community solar was going to change the way that you were able to offer value to your customers? Because as we mentioned earlier, you originally started buying Windrex. Like, it, what, do you remember the point where you were like, community solar is the fourth vertical. This is where it's going to, like, where, this is our engine. I mean, it's, a, it's cheaper, cleaner, local energy. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just nothing better than that without putting yeah. a power plant on your roof. Yeah. You know, I think the struggle in the early days was it still looked like rooftop solar. You yeah. had to sign a long-term agreement. You had to uh, have a really high FICO score. But we were able to rip those things away. And when you do that, yeah. it just becomes the best retail energy product possible. It takes a lot of risk appetite, though, because like I talked to David about this uh, at Sunshare. And when you decide that you're going to decouple the contract from the client and you basically have a two-sided market, then you have to uh, you you have to start thinking. Why I use the Comcast example in terms of subscribers, and the reality is like this flow of uh, of entertainment or energy or however you want to think about it is going to be ever present. And we are so confident in the systems and businesses that we in the systems that we built that we will never lack for subscribers. Is that kind of the mental? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. Like, yes, demand is what drives someone's safety and, yeah. and feeling good about project returns. But I also think community solar is fundamentally safer than other forms of solar because, because of what you just said, the offtake is fractional and fungible. Like you can slide people in and out. And so if I'm building a solar project and it's a commercial project and I get my, my single corporate PPA, I have a single point of failure mm-hmm. for 100% of my revenue. But in a community solar project, because it's fractional, if one person moves, I only lose maybe a tenth of a percent or half a percent of my, you know, and I can easily slide that in. So yes, it's part of what you said. You need to make sure the demand's always there. But fundamentally, it's just the lack, the long-term risk in a fully subscribed community solar project is, in my opinion, significantly less. I think some of the asset owners who've been in this for now a couple of years are seeing that, especially through a pandemic where, you know, some commercial stuff that they underwrote you know, the off-takers don't exist anymore. Oh man. Yeah. I love the quote, the off-take is fractional and fungible. First, I like alliteration. But, yeah. But second, it's, <laughs> it uses two very key terms that folks have to understand about the energy economy. Uh, I love that. I'm definitely going to use that again. How big could this really be? I'll put it in very real terms. Uh, we project it to be a 15 gigawatt market by 25 what? I think most people don't. 25, I expected you to say 30 or 35. Yeah, no, 2025. Um, in my opinion, it's the fat, and in my opinion, I think it's the fastest growing competitive energy trend in the US. Um, you know, when I started the business, I think community solar was in two states. It's now in, it, next year it'll be close to 14. Um, regulators love it. Some utilities actually prefer it because mm-hmm. it's not you know, on rooftops. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's sites, you know, cited on the distribution grid. There's just all sorts of reasons why it actually over time should be bigger than yeah. residential rooftop solar. Mm-hmm. And I think it's early days. So look, I mean, we're making a big bet as a company that this is, uh, this is the retail product of the future. But I think the last two years where you've seen 
you know, Virginia, New Mexico, New Jersey, all pass laws. Like yeah. there, there's more and more happening. Yeah. I think it's going to be a big segment of the market. Well, you're making a big bet, but some other, other folks have made a big bet on you recently. Our friend uh, Shale made a big announcement that he's happy to be, I think they're one of your early investors they in are. the series yeah. and maybe even the seed, but they, they followed on, I, th- I guess they followed on the D round. Who led that round? Yeah. Tiger. Tiger led Global. the, wow. Yeah. Goodness gracious. Who gets to say that? <laughs> Tiger led our series D 100 million round. Uh, I'm guessing you had no lack of uh, momentum for filling that round. Uh, why raise more capital right now? I think the ambitions have just gotten bigger. Like, Every year I spend running this company, it just feels like there's, there's more and more to build and the market's growing faster than we can keep up. Yeah. And, you know, I say no to that. Like, there's very few times, I think, as a founder where you're like, this is so exponential and it just continues to grow and grow. So I just think, you know, I, I've said this in other places, and I think it's true. I think Arcadia sits in between two of the biggest markets, mm-hmm. period, which is sustainability and software. And... You know, I do think we can build, uh, you know, one of the larger tech companies broadly, forget industry, just tech companies, just in the energy vertical. Ambitious aspirations. Yeah. What else are we here for? (laughs) So, you know, you now join a peer group that's rather small in our sector, right? Uh, Our friends at Aurora raised a rather large, was it a D as well? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, they immediately turned around and uh, did what I had already predicted they would do, which picked up our friends at, all, at Folsom, right? So can, can you give me a little insight on what you hope to accomplish in terms of new products and evolutions and solutions for Arcadia in the coming months and years? Yeah, look, a lot of this is about expanding the technology team. Mm-hmm. There is so much new tech to build around data, around payments, connecting to clean energy, carbon intensity on the grid. We're doing more around home electrification, EV charging, smart charging, there's a lot to build. So, you know, a lot of this capital will go toward that. We're expanding into small business and commercial clients for community solar, mm-hmm. which is something we have not done uh, traditionally. So far, the capital will go toward that. And, you know, I do think there are a lot of point solutions out there that we'll look toward to bring into the platform. Point solutions. Can you give me an example? Yes. Yeah, so we recently bought um, a company called uh, NanoGrid, a small company that does... You bought NanoGrid, didn't Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, John and Dan are, are wonderful. And they, um, you know, they'd built some really interesting tools around smart charging uh, yeah. for EV owners, uh, which is really complicated and hard. And, yeah. um, you know, with our energy data, it becomes sort of a full, and the ability to cross-sell clean energy, it becomes, you know, a, a full product. So that point solution makes a lot of sense on our platform. So we'll be looking at things like that. But in general, it's, it's growing the team and, mm-hmm. and building the, the technology platform. I have a million other questions I want to ask you. You've been really gracious with your time. If folks wanted to learn more about Arcadia, where should they check? Check, And then if they wanted to get in touch with you, is that, is that possible? Where do you like to be found? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'll, I'll give you my email. It's kieran at arcadia.com. Uh, if you've listened this far uh, and you have questions, feel free to reach out. But yeah, look, we're, we're public. We're on social, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, our companies. At Arcadia? Yeah. Okay. Um, the company is, uh, you know, we're, we don't shy away from talking publicly about totally uh, decarbonization and clean energy for all. So yeah. feel free to well, get in touch. I'll have to have you back and I'll ask some of the more uh, sort of traditional Suncast questions about your book choices and all the things that, that inspire your morning Let's routines, et cetera. 
but let's uh, let's end today as we always do with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball as the presumptive leader in technology for the energy sector and beyond? I think you're going to see a massive push to actually unlock data from mm-hmm. utilities. To me, it's like the... Like, like way more than utility API. It's more, it's like... Way really, more than green button or anything. You know, actual, actionable, useful, high fidelity data from utilities to me is like the foundation if we're going to have a decentralized grid uh, with DERs. And without data, it becomes incredibly hard to scale and scale rapidly. And so I just think that realization is going to happen very soon, especially with EVs and more storage and and controllable systems on the grid. I don't see a ton of people talking about it in our industry, Mm -hmm. but it is like the unlock. Kieran Batraju is the CEO and founder of Arcadia Power, and we are definitely going to have to get him back on the show. Kieran, thank you for taking time to be here on Suncast today. It's great to be here. Thanks, man. Well, that was really an interesting look at how the solar industry is taking strides towards solar for all. And few companies and individuals are growing as quickly and with such a rock star team as Arcadia and Kiran, Joel and the rest of the leadership there. Thanks for taking the time to be with us and listen in on this conversation. Thank you to Kiran for inviting me to your office in DC where we recorded that episode. So good to finally be in person again. This is only my second in-person interview in quite a long time. If you're eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this discussion and every other discussion on the podcast, along with their social media links so you can reach out and connect with them, book recommendations so you can continue to get smarter, and other links that I might have found interesting along the way as I researched for this episode. Those are linked in the episode notes over at mysuncast.com. Just look on episodes. I have a question for you, though. Do you see Arcadia as disrupting the utility model? What thoughts, comments, or questions come up for you after listening today? Since I know you're already hopping online, I'd love to ask you, if you wouldn't mind, to share this episode with someone on LinkedIn that you think would enjoy it or appreciate it. I know Karen would love to hear from you and connect with you, and I'd love to hear just how this episode landed with you. What else do you want to know about Community Solar? Who else do you think needs to hear this fascinating story today? I hope you'll tune in to tomorrow's episode, which is the longer version and a bonus episode, I might add, on Tuesday's episode that I published on storytelling with my friend Rain Bennett, the Emmy-nominated producer and writer and storyteller. You won't want to miss that one. And then next week is Thanksgiving, of course, as I mentioned in the intro, I'll be teasing this hydrogen series that we've been working on. And I have my friend Yunus Scali of Everybody Solar here to help you be thankful for all that we have in our industry here on Thursday's Thanksgiving episode. And I'm thankful once again to our sponsors who help make sure that you receive this content each and every week and at no upfront cost. You can learn more about them as well as how you could partner with us here on Suncast to reach thousands of clean energy champions and solar warriors just like yourself. Go to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.